So I wonder, how do you feel about the label lifestyle business? Have you been called that? Do you call yourself that? And how do you feel about it? My gut reaction is I don't like it <laughs> because, right. because it has this um, connotation that you're just kind of, oh, you're just doing it. And it's like, you know, it's just all fun. And like, nobody really, you know, you're not, you're not really working that hard. And, you know, and no disservice to anybody that has a lifestyle business that, and, you know, that does that, you know, that's great. But I think what ours was, was something that we were working and are working very, very hard on. That's Jesse Thomas this week on the Lean Startup Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome and welcome back. This is the Lean Startup Podcast, a show about entrepreneurs bringing ideas to life from startups to large organizations, governments, and nonprofits. Hi, and welcome back to the Lean Startup Podcast, where we discuss innovation, entrepreneurship, and the journey to discovering how to go from a great idea to a great product, and even more importantly, a great business. I'm your host, Chris Guest. I'm the CMO of a sleep technology company called Bright here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And in today's episode, I'm hoping that we will challenge some assumptions of what the path to a high-performance business needs to look like. And to do so, we have a guest today that is truly exceptional and really embodies high performance in every way. He is Jesse Thomas. He's the co-founder and CEO of Picky Bars, a graduate of mechanical engineering from Stanford with an MBA from Oregon. And most famously of all, he's a professional triathlete and two-time world Ironman champion. Jesse, your parents must be so proud. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess. My, mom, my mom's a big fan. I, I can't lie. <laughs> 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 well, thanks very much for joining us and, and, and being on the show. For, for folks that don't know you, could you catch us up a little bit on your, your life and career before the genesis of Picky Bars? Yeah, so um, I was uh, born and raised here in Bend, Oregon, which is uh, where I'm calling from and, and live now. And um, went to uh, Stanford on a track and field scholarship. I was a, a distance runner there. I found my calling in an, in an event called the steeplechase, which is this weird event on the track that's actually modeled after a horse race where you, you run 3,000 meters and jump over these huge barriers, five barriers a lap. And um, one of the barriers on each lap has a water pit on the other side of it. <laughs> so if you've never seen that, look up uh, steeplechase videos. You'll, find, you'll probably see people um, cr- uh, falling yeah, lots of speeds. fails and yeah, lots into of fails. Yeah, you'll find a, exactly a lot of steeplechase fa- fails on YouTube, and um, a couple of which are mine. And um, yeah, uh, but was a runner there and kind of like wanted to be, you know, aspired to be an Olympian. Um, and uh, when I was 22, had uh, was 11th in the U.S. in the steeplechase kind of kid in my second year and had two years to pass eight guys to, you know, make potentially make the Olympic team. And, um, but I broke my foot really bad just the next fall, um, uh, running bad, really bad stress fracture that ended up taking a really long time to recover from. And in the process of trying to cross train through that injury, I got into cycling, was doing some bike racing and then had a really bad crash that where I actually broke my neck. And um, as a result of that, pretty much stopped anything athletically for years and went into startup life in San Francisco with some other buddies that had done mechanical engineering degrees uh, with me. And I uh, was a startup guy working in San Francisco for about five years until I reconnected with my on and on again, off again girlfriend from Stanford, who is now my wife, Lauren. And um, we got engaged, move up to Eugene, where I went to business school, where she was running professionally. And, um, and then that, after I finished business school was when I was about 30. And that was the kind of start of that whole another phase of my life, which includes picky bars and the, um, and the triathlon career. Right. So let's jump back to that startup experience. What, what was that yeah. like for you? Um, I think it was the pretty, I think it was a pretty typical Bay Area startup experience in the early 2000s you know we were post um just post like dot-com bubble but there was still there was like a lot of reinvestment coming into um 
you know, coming into tech still. And um, we were a group of mechanical engineers and business students and product designers that wanted to create a fuel cell, a mobile fuel cell power system at that time for um, like laptops. And um, I was primarily like a product developer, kind of product manager, bridging between uh, marketing and, and product development um, engineering side. And there were five of us to start and it was like that 80 to 90 hours a week in this, you know, crazy little space in San Francisco, just south of the ballpark. And, um, you know, living, working, breathing, everything, our startup, sleeping there, <laughs> you know, um, it was a crazy experience, but really fun, um, learned a lot worked really hard and I think developed a love for the process of entrepreneurship. You know, uh, yeah. we, we, the, the, that, that story wraps in maybe a semi unique way coming out of the Bay area and that it, it wasn't a massive success or at least even hasn't been yet. And um, even though the company is still around and, and, and has gone on to do other things, you know, it didn't make any of us rich. And, um, but we, we certainly had a good time and, and worked really hard and I think learned a lot. And was that a VC funded business? Yeah, it was. Yeah. We raised, um, in the three years that I was there, we, ra we, <clears throat> we raised about three and a half million dollars mm -hmm. and, um, but it was really, really high tech, like hardware and software product development. So it wasn't, um, you know, we were, we were still heavy in the product development process when, when I left and we had done a we had had a, a couple kind of really early pre-production prototypes, but we're still away from, a ways away from like a commercially ready consumer product. Mm. And yeah. what did that experience teach you about the lifestyle demands of uh, a VC funded um, startup? Oh yeah. I mean, it was, it was insane <laughs> you know it, it taught it taught me that it was very hard and that, that it's a very one-dimensional life you know and um and 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 ultimately that was why i left i got burnt out you know i spent like i said from the time i was about 23 to about 27 uh i i probably over that four years averaged 60 to 70 hours a week of work and um and that's okay. That's okay for, for a little bit of time, um, particularly when you're 25 years old or 24 years old and single and, and you, have, you, you literally have no other demands on your life outside of whatever it is that you're doing yourself. And, um, but but even, even then, even as a 26, 27-year-old, I knew that it wasn't the right balance of life for me. And um, I, I had completely lost any athleticism. I had, I had friends, but my, I mean, my friends were my coworkers and they're still great friends, but I had, I had very, very little life outside of work. And um, that just didn't feel appropriate after a while. Mm. And so was that the impetus for you, not just getting fit again, but deciding to become a professional athlete? Yeah. You know, that was a little bit later, but yeah, it was, it was the impetus for me to start doing triathlon for sure, because I just got to this point where I was 27, you know, three, four, let's say four to five years out from being this, you know, at least national class endurance athlete. And, um, just felt like a whole part of me was missing, you know, not, not really like, Oh God, I'm out of shape and I got to get back in shape again. It, it was really like, um, I just missed a fundamental piece of myself and felt like that wasn't, that wasn't going to be appropriate for, you know, going forward. So I left that, I went up, I, I went to business school and in business school, I had a little bit of flexibility to start being active again, even though business school was very demanding time-wise as well. And anybody that's gone to business school knows that it's not exactly conducive towards training. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of quote unquote networking and socializing that happens. A lot of which happens around a, uh, at a pub. And, um, 
And so, you know, I, but I, I at least spent that couple years still working very intensely on business and, and actually creating a startup to launch out of business school, but also finding a little bit more balance with myself athletically and just personally as well. Well, I mean, how in the world do you balance those things? I mean, triathlon is like a, <laughs> the training alone is like a full-time job in itself. So did yeah. you find there was a, a tension between, you know, your athletic career and interests and, and, and your professional career? Yeah. I mean, you know, and really looking in all fairness, I, I felt this, or I've had this tension my entire life. You know, I mean, even when I was in high school, I wanted to be, um, I had interests in, in everything, you know, and, um, and that included academic interests and, and athletic interests. And I, I saw myself, at, I, I definitely think that being an athlete was probably my primary identity, but it wasn't my only identity. And, um, and so I experienced that all through high school. And then in college, I mean, I, geez, I did two mechanical engineering degrees there while I was a distance runner on the track team. That's pretty rare. So I'd had some, I'd had experience with high level training and still having at least a heavy academic load. And, um, and then, uh, and then, like I said, in the, in the startup phase, it was really like no athleticism, just academic or professional life. And that just didn't feel appropriate. So then going back to business school was a little bit more and yeah, it's, um, it's hard, but it's something that I've had experience with a lot. And um, I think, the baseline is that I feel like I'm actually a better professional because of, because of having some type of athletic pursuit and probably a better athlete because I have some type of pursuit outside of my, my athletics and certainly a better and happier person when I mm. pursue all of those um, in some balanced form. Mm. So where did the idea for picky bars come from? So yeah, so I finished my business degree and that was right at the tail, that was right at the crux of the second um, uh, economic crisis, you know, the, the housing bubble. And, um, and so it was kind of, it was, it was a really shitty time to be an MBA, <laughs> to, have, yeah. to have an MBA. If you guys remember that, you know, Lehman Brothers or whatever had just laid off like 180,000 MBAs. And, um, you know, so it was kind of like the worst time ever to be graduating with, with a business degree. And I had a startup that I had been working on that, that I, I think would have been, would have been great. But I also just felt like after the four years of startup and then two years of business school, I take a little break and I didn't have to go back and work. Lauren was going to be, Lauren was a professional athlete, had been since, since college. She was a much better collegiate distance runner than me. And we, amazingly successful. So she was running for Nike at the time and was going to be in Europe in the summer. And I just decided, you know, I'm just going to go with Lauren to Europe, take three months off and just see what I want to do in the fall when I come back. And, um, and during that time I started training, uh, because I was in Europe and I just wanted to be on a bike and run and, and just explore the environment. And I fell in love with it again and was like, you know, I really should try some triathlon. I dabbled it a little bit in it, um, you know, but I think I want to pursue this seriously. And so I started um, consulting when I got back home in the fall as a means to make a little bit of money, but didn't do that startup or like starting things serious and, uh, and started training a whole bunch. And as a result of that training, I started consuming four to 5,000 calories a day <laughs> as triathletes do when you're, when you're training two to five hours a day. And, um, as a result of that consumption, I had a whole bunch of stomach problems. Lauren just, Lauren just clearly would say he had really bad gas. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and she was pretty sure that it was set off by a whole bunch of like these kind of energy bar products and like energy products that, that contain highly processed ingredients that I was eating a lot of in and around my exercise. And so she wanted to create an energy bar for me that was um, all real food ingredients, um, was free of all of kind of the typical allergens that upset people's stomach like dairy, soy, and gluten. And, um, 
and then, but then something that was, you know, athletically balanced still like a good, like a good energy bar for in and around exercise. And then also something that tastes great. So that, that was, she started messing around in the kitchen with our other, with her friend and our other co-founder Steph. And eventually they came up with this thing that we called a, a picky bar because we were very picky and specific about the ingredients that were in there and the, um, the nutritional profile and, and all that type of stuff. And, um, and that was it. That was the genesis of the product. And, and then this, the company, you know, slowly kind of started from there. Yeah. And, it, and it's such an acute need as well when you're doing uh, the level of training you are. I mean, I'm nowhere near at your level, but, uh, you know, I, I swim masters. And when I first moved yep. to San Francisco, my friend got me into cycling and cycling up mountains and then hundred mile rides over the mountains where you're burning 7,000 calories in a day. And so you, so yeah. you just start chowing down of this packaged so-called energy food. And you can't even, you can hardly even count the ingredients in these things, let alone yes. pronounce them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, totally. and, yeah and, and a friend told me about a book called Feed Zone. And, and one of the ideas in there is kind of like, you know, eat food that your grandmother would recognize as food. Yeah. And, and, and I think there's, this sort of lines up with the time that you're talking, it's great demand, this cultural need among athletes to, to eat real food. Um, but finding a way to make it compatible with the demands of, of, of not just any given, say, bike ride, but the demands on your time over the, over the course of a day. So yep. great idea in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, so actually, for, for full disclosure, I feel like I should say that I am actually a customer of yours. I buy your products oh. and I'm a fan <laughs> of them. And Awesome. I, I got into it because uh, I actually have a, a rare um, disease called eosinophilic gastrointestinal disorder, which uh-huh. a, a byproduct of which creates food allergies. And so oh, wow. I'm always hunting around the aisles looking at, at sports bars for something that I could actually eat. Awesome. Uh, and I, I found yours down and have chowed down several cases of those over the last few years. So <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, thank you for, for creating well, maybe we it. Could, maybe at some point we could do a swap of, of, of a lot of picky bars for one of those nice mattresses you were talking about yeah to be to be continued let's do it yeah exactly Um, uh, okay so at this point you know you're an interesting point here in that you've got a passion for athletics and and an idea for the business but also the scar tissue of of the previous startup experiences that you've had so was that a struggle for you to reconcile the two and how did you go about that yeah, it was at the beginning. It it wasn't um, it wasn't too much of a struggle, really, because picky bars was so you know no no pun intended was just so much more or, organic in the way that it started. Um, there was never, ironically, I just fin- finished business school. There was never a business plan. There was never a you know even a like we're gonna grow it to this size and we have aspiration to do this and that and all this other stuff. It was just Lauren and Steph making bars. In fact, I wasn't even involved in the first uh, six months. They were just making bars and then they started selling them to their, um, to their friends and they were talking about how much they should sell them for and um, one of them had said a dollar and that's when, that's when I got into the conversation and was kind of like, hey, I think you guys should probably sell it a little bit more than that and I started helping them think about pricing. And then, then what ended up happening for me was that I got really excited about the business because of the, because I had spent my entire professional life in product development and we, we, we had never at my previous startup startup had never actually had a product that we were selling (laughs) to people. And in this one, the product was done. And now it was all these other problems like, you know, marketing and sales and, and distribution and supply chain and, and, and an actual, pro, uh, like a legitimate P&L statement, you know, and um, that was really fun. And, but, but I think kind of like going back to your question, it wasn't, there wasn't a master plan with it. It was all kind of like all three of us, Lauren was already racing professionally at like a world-class level. I was starting my professional triathlon career and that was my number one priority. And Steph was starting her professional uh, running career, our other co-founder as well. So it was really just kind of this hobby business that was just like a side thing for years as it started. 
in um, something that we didn't, I would say I took, I took seriously, but didn't spend the time to like take it, to like really take it seriously, at least for the first like three to four years of the business's life. Hmm. So did you have a deliberate strategy of, of how you would make the business fit your life or you just got on with it and, and you found a way to, to, to mold the business around your athletic career? It was, a, it was a little bit of both. I mean, it was, it was definitely like, I basically got to decide from the get-go what Picky Bars was going to be because Lauren Lauren was, like I said, a world-class athlete running for Nike at the time. Like she had, her job was to go race at the world championships. Steph was, was, was an aspiring professional um, without much of a bit, any business background. And so it was really kind of me like, hey, what do you, you can be in charge. You're going to be the one that, while those two were still heavily involved, you're going to be the one that kind of dictates, you know, what's going to happen with the company. And for me, it was just like, I really want to race triathlon. I'm going to continue to train my 10 to 20 hours a week. And, um, and then in the time in between that, I'm going to spend as much time on the business as I can. And when it's appropriate, I'm going to hire people and I'm going to work on the most important things that will uh, bring hopefully growth and success to the business during that time. But I'm not, I'm still going to go race. I'm still going to train. And that's going to be a massive priority, if not the number one priority at the beginning. And mm -hmm. so their business, <clears throat> and we, we talked a little bit about this before the podcast, but I think as a result of that, the business was able to grow on its own and shape in its own way that wasn't like forced through a significant investment and like marketing and kind of you could almost say like propped up consumer demand right it was just like a um it just kind of happened and more people learned about it because we weren't spending on anything and it was like people's friends or or friends of us or people that were following us on social media and then and and it really just slowly slowly grew as a result of that and I think now looking back on that has a maybe a pretty solid foundation as a result of that, like slow, slow growth over time. We didn't need it to create income for us personally because we were all making money racing professionally. And um, that was a big part of it. But yeah, it was really interesting to see how it grew like that. I think mm, I'll think back on it now. And did you need to take any outside funding at all or are you, you totally no, self-funded? Yeah, no, we, we are still a hundred percent self-funded. Um, Lauren and I have put some money into the business, but a lot of that was, um, was just recently in kind of like a supply chain hiccup that we had that, that cost us some money. Um, but yeah, I mean for, but, but yeah, for the most, for, or yes, we own it all now. There's no investment in it. And, and no dilution um, as a result. No right? dilution, yeah. But at the same time, uh, you know, in full transparency, I just paid myself for the first time in 2019, you know? So it was like nine years later, um, I paid myself. And so, um, you know, it's been, it's, we own it all. It's, it's, it's doing well, um, but it's taken a long time to get there, you know? Yeah. So what have you learned about what it takes to be, self-funded or, or how to how to grow off your own revenue that that was perhaps not obvious just in theory being the mba that you are well i think unless you are unless you have some type of amazing business model or product that just catches instantaneously or you have some type of amazing viral moment um it's going to take a it's going to take time and a lot of patience and um, like I said, I think that we, that was okay with us because it was just, it was a second, secondary priority for us as, as, for that first few years. Um, but then the thing that's, in, that's interesting, and I think maybe more interesting to the audience of this podcast is 
it wasn't consciously done because like to fit our model, but what ended up happening was we developed a really early subscription business as a part of our, uh, that ended up being the core kind of revenue generator and really like the backbone of the business financially. And in hindsight, or I know that now, but in hindsight, I think that that subscription business, that direct to consumer subscription business enabled us to grow with limited cash in a way that a lot of other consumer product businesses can't, particularly in food where a lot of sales are driven through distribution. And as a result of that, you have massive um, delays in when you receive cash for the product that you've sent out to your customers. Yeah. And that's, and that's really key that return, that recurring revenue. And I guess yeah. uh, maybe that's something that, that is a nice virtue of the business that you're in with the, 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 the audience being athletes. You want this constant dis, uh, supply of, of your sports nutrition. You don't want to think about having to go and get it. And so yeah. there's a consumer need for, uh, you know, the, a box arriving in the mail every month, yeah. but that's saving you, you know, having to pay customer acquisition costs, every single person that you acquire and thinking more about a, a longer lifetime revenue of each customer that you get, right? Yes, that, that's exactly it. And I think when you look specifically in like the food and beverage business, um, you in food, the typical model is you develop a product, you go start sampling it in your local grocery store, and then you get it into a small chain, and then you, get, then you bring it into a distributor. And what happens with the distributors is you they buy a whole bunch of product. You hire a broker to go sell that product to um, all the grocery stores that work through that regional distributor. And then be, and then you've sold the product to the distributor, but you don't get the money back from that product for 60, 90, 120 days. And a lot of times there's a ton of these, uh, what they call in the industries, chargebacks, like promotional, kind of slices off the top that have been taken as a result of the promotion you're doing. So what ends up happening is you get wide distribution. You can say your sales are big, but your margin is really low and, you've, and it requires a ton of cash because you've also paid the contract manufacturer prior to even getting the product in a lot of, way, in a lot of times. And so you have this huge cash cycle. What, and then versus what happens with us, we pay our contract, we get our product, we pay our contract manufacturer for it. We literally ship that product out in the next like seven to 10, 20 days. And we receive credit card payment immediately. And so all of that cash can be come back and can be put right back into our next order with the contract manufacturer, as opposed to like sitting back out there. And as a result of that, you need so much less cash to scale. And that's a big part of why we didn't have to raise money versus other food businesses that are doing it more through typical distribution. So it sounds like it was a real asset for you that you know, actually your, your, your audience and your, your community of the other athletes that you serve were an asset for you in your business in terms of being able to sample and feedback on the products as you were creating them. Right? Absolutely. And, it, and it's become even more so as it's really grown. We now have this, uh, well, yeah, just to talk about how it has been historically, we have done every single new product that we've launched has gone specifically to our subscription service first. Usually, and the subscription service, I should say, is called the Piggy Club. I need to do a better job of kind of promoting it <laughs> as I'm talking about it here. Um, has gone to the Piggy Club first. Um, and it's every product that has gone there has actually gone at, in a prototype form. And we take feedback on that prototype from the picky club prior to like mass producing it. That has been super, super valuable for us and also super valuable for the picky club because they get this thing that's literally in a, you know, a lot of like the bars that we sent out initially were in these white packages that just say like sample on them, you know, and there's like no branding, no labeling. It's pretty cool. Um, and that has been, that has proved to be more and more valuable as we've gone, as we've, as the club has actually grown, because now we have, there's enough people in our picky club that the data is legitimate. You can, you can, you can get feedback from them and it's, and it's, you know, uh, 
you can actually get legitimate stats from it. So it's, mm. um, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and, and enables us to do really special things. I think also with our um, product development process in general, where we don't need to create a product for mass distribution or mass consumption um, and preview that product to our distributors three to six months ahead of time, do all this um, kind of promotional planning with, you know, uh, media and everything. We can literally just make a product and send it out to our customers. And if they like it, great. And if they don't, we can just turn it off. It's like, does it, yeah. it costs us like very little to try. And that's an interesting supply chain advantage, I think for us versus bigger food companies. Amazing. Yeah. And I, I'd guess also that your, your, let's say fame as a, a professional athlete probably helps you get off the ground as well. Right. I mean, one thing that I quite often look at for, for, you know, when I look at startups or give advice to friends or whatever is, do you own your own media? Do you have yeah. any existing channels or following that can help you get the word out? And I'm guessing that you probably weren't starting from zero because you already had the, the sort of the fame and following from your, from your athletic career, right? Yeah, we were really lucky. And that's, that's a huge, huge part of the success of how we could start with no money as well. You know, so that's, that's like a, that's, that's a big part of it. Lauren was already, Lauren was already a nationally known distance runner when we started the company and um we started it in 2000 late 2010 which was really right when twitter was kind of becoming pervasive and um it was before instagram but lauren had a pretty good twitter following and she had a blog and that was a big part of how we launched the product and then i i got on twitter and then twitter was growing at, as my athletic career was growing so i started gaining a following in the triathlon um, side. And then we all joined Instagram early and, you know, had to have decent Instagram followings. I, I would call us, um, I use the term uh, micro famous <laughs> <laughs> because you're like, you know, I think if Lauren shows up to a track meet or, a, or a marathon or something like that, like she's going to walk around and she's going to get noticed, you mm. know, and there's going to be people that are going to, come up to her and say, Oh, I love what you wrote or what you did or whatever. Can I have my picture with you? And the same thing will happen to me at a triathlon. Um, but, uh, that, but it's certainly not happening when we go to the grocery store. Right. right. And so, but it, but it is these, it is, it, it is these like tight pockets of, of people. Um, and those, uh, you know, those fans, um, become your initial customers because they're interested in trying something that you have created. And, and that's a big part of how we grew from the outset. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, Tim Ferriss often says like first figure out how to build an audience and then figure out how to sell them something. Yeah. And it, and it yeah. seems like yours has naturally happened that way around, right? It definitely has. I not, not purposefully, you know, but yeah, but that, but that has been, that's part of it, you know, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, how do you feel about the label lifestyle business? Have you been called that? Do you call yourself that? And how do you feel about it? Yeah, we, we have, and we, we have, um, and, um, or I have had people talk, uh, label it like that. I think that that's, I think that lifestyle business has the, you know, my gut reaction is I don't like it <laughs> because, right. because it has this, um, connotation that you're just kind of oh you're just doing it and it's like you know it's just all fun and like nobody really you know you're not you're not really working that hard and you know and no disservice to anybody that has a lifestyle business that and you know that does that you know that's great but i think what <clears throat> what ours was was something that we were working and are working very very hard on but under the context of also working very, very hard on something that's mostly separate from that business. And, um, and so, I, you know, you could say, I think when you say lifestyle, it, look, it feels like I'm working 20 hours a week. And that's probably right. I was probably working about 20 hours a week on picky bars for the first five or six years um, on average over the course of the year. But I was also working 20 to 30 hours on my triathlon career um, as well, you know. 
And so, um, yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit a, a misleading, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is why I asked because yeah. I've heard many people kind of refer to lifestyle business in a somewhat pejorative way, um, yep. historically, but I think we're at an yeah. interesting point now where, you know, there could be a shift in that perception because, you know, recently we've seen a number of casualties of the of the quote unquote VC treadmill and going yep. from one raise to another raise and pursuing growth at all costs. And yep. obviously Uber, Uber and WeWork have been famous casualties of that recently. And yep. in fact, as we record this, you know, Casper are having a, a tough time on the eve of their IPO. We, we, we don't know. Yep. Hopefully that'll work out okay for them. Yep. Um, but I wonder if there is, if you feel that there's a need to raise more awareness uh, among entrepreneurs that, that there is another route. You, you know, you don't have to just take money early and then be a, a slave to that. And, and the, the lifestyle business approach can, you know, be a, for many, many cases, a better option. Yeah. I mean, I do think that, that awareness should be brought to it. Um, you know, I think everybody has their, their kind of own path that, that they want to take, but, um, the the advent of you know social media and and kind of um, the fragmentation of like e-commerce and and the the growth of sh sites like Shopify um, are making it easier and easier for people to uh, start businesses on their own and um, I believe that you know markets in general and consumers will are going to buy in a more fragmented way uh in general you know in general going going forward mm. i think that there's a real opportunity for people to take a step back and think like hey do i need to for me to feel like this is successful do i need to take this thing to 20 to 30 40 million on a 80 percent growth rate unprofitably to sell before we actually have to turn a profit uh, and be able for me to feel good about the money and the time and, and that I'm going to make and the time that I sunk into it. Or is there virtue and, and not even virtue, is there legitimate value to me in creating a uh, half a million to a one or $2 million business that pays me well and, and um, that I own and operate on my own? And um, that's, that's an interesting thing to look at nowadays. I think more, there's going to be more and more consumer product businesses that can exist like that as opposed to in the past because you can direct market to your customers in way, and direct sell to your customers in ways that you just haven't been able to in decades previous. Yeah. Uh, but again, there's then a, an equal tension that, it's easier to start, but because it's easier to start, more people start. And so yeah, one true. thing I've heard in different categories is that, you know, starting a business has never been easier, but actually competing and maintaining the competitive advantages has never been harder um, because of not just more entrepreneurs starting a business, but also more VC funding coming into other companies around you. Have you experienced that? Uh, definitely on the VC funding side. Um, I think, um, you know, there's been, you know, there's been so much money made on tech over the last 10 years that, um, that tech VCs or mostly, you know, primarily tech VCs have pivoted into consumer goods and have started investing in similar ways, looking for similar types of kind of unicorn, um, growth and, and exit. And as a result of that, the um, food space, just in the 10 years that I've been in it, um, has, has really been a funnel for a lot of venture investment. And that has created a whole bunch of companies coming in and doing that, that big distribution spend that I talked about at the beginning of just blowing their product out to mass spending heavily on marketing running uh, really big big losses for for years in the hopes that they achieve revenue growth and a scale that that looks good to an acquirer that will then come in and try to make it profitable mm -hmm. and um that's a different way to go and it's a risky way to go and it puts a lot of pressure on companies like us 
you know? I mean, I literally, I, you know, I've talked to competitors who tell me they're spending, you know, very unprofitably 300 grand a quarter or whatever on Amazon ads conquesting from companies like us, you know, taking our customers, advertising on top of us. In fact, if any of you guys go to Amazon right now and you search picky bars, you're probably going to see like five companies on top of us that are all bidding for our customers right now. And we are, we don't have the money to outbid those, those customers, those companies. And so it does, it puts a lot of pressure, like, and it makes me think about it now. now that I'm working on it full time, that I'm not training and racing as much as I was in, in my, in the last decade. Um, you know, what do I need to do to keep the business competitive and to keep it growing? And, and is there some part of that, that, you know, where I, um, maybe it's not full VC, but is there some part of that where, Hey, bringing in some outside capital could help us be competitive and reach the next phase. And, and I don't know, that's something that I'm, that I'm thinking about right now. So at the moment then you are, so you're not uh, competing professionally anymore. And so picky bars is now your full-time gig. Is that right? Yeah. So, well, yeah, I would say, um, yes, yes. And no, I'm transitioning, uh, from competing full-time and, uh, and really that happened just over about the last year. And, um, and it was, it was a combination of, uh, you know, I'm going to be 40 in about three weeks. <laughs> so my body, in, in all fairness, my body is feeling the strain I put it through in my 30s. I have two young kids, a six-year-old and a two-year-old. And I um, really feel like, you know, at the, heat, at the peak of my athletic career, I just couldn't spend enough quality time with them. Not even time, but like, time where I'm not just obliterated from my workout mm. or my workouts. And, um, I want to spend more quality time with them. And I also feel like at this point in my life, I can have a bigger impact on my family and on my community and the communities that I care about through my business than I can by winning another Ironman or, or, you know, going to Kona again or whatever. And, um, and so that, that's where I'm pivoting my focus. And then, and then, yeah, as a result of that, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, more seriously about, Hey, I did this as kind of, like I said, the second priority for to nine years while I was a professional athlete and, and really trying to be world-class as a triathlete. And now can I still maintain athletic balance in my life, but really try to be like a world-class CEO, you know, and what does that take? Um, what type of resources do I need to, to, keep my company competitive and to help it grow in the ways that best impact our customers and our community. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's what we're, that's what I'm looking at right now. And I'm evaluating all those, all those potential paths. Mm. Well, I mean, the more options you have, the more power you have. And it sounds like you're in a great place if you did decide that you wanted to raise because you've already got a brand, you've already got, you know, multi-millions in revenue, you're undiluted yeah. and, I guess there's that cliche, isn't it? That the best time to raise is when you don't need to. Yeah. And that's, that's what I've heard from people and that, and that, you know, but I'll be totally honest. I mean, I am suspect, you know, like I, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot for the last six months and weighing just, just along the lines of this conversation that we've had, weighing the pluses and minuses, like, all right, more resources, more, um, you know, uh, kind of brains at the, at the table, like hopefully, you know, people that are established and experienced that can help us. Um, but also more oversight and maybe as a result of that, more pressure and, um, and more expectation and, and, and a loss of kind of control potentially for, for me personally, um, of my own life. And so, you know, there's a little bit of, of back and forth of that. And I think what I'm, leaning towards and, and thinking about now is like, really, I do think raising money from the right people could be the kind of the best of both worlds, right? And it, mm. and it, and, and it, goes, it goes back to this, like, are you going, are you raising money from a VC that is 100% like return driven? And they need a return, and on the and on the extreme end of that, they need a return of 10x or more. And they want to they want to 
they want to invest whatever into 20 different companies and they need one or two of them to work out and then they're going to be great. And that's their model. Or do you go with somebody else that's like, Hey, I love this business. I love what you guys, I love the products you make. I love what you guys mean to your customers, to your community. I love the good that you are doing in the world. And I want to, I want to see that grow. And, and I also, I, I also hope and, you know, want a legitimate return on my investment, but it's not kind of this like shotgun unicorn approach. And I think that's what we're, that's what I'm ideally looking for right now, I think is trying to evaluate, can I find a group of people that are like-minded that are looking, they can look at this in a little bit different way. And, um, and so, uh, you know, and look at the return, I guess, a little bit more holistically than just the money and just needing a, a big, uh, you know, shot back. So, yeah. um, I, you know, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I feel like that's a whole nother podcast episode right there is to sort yeah, of right. understand more about those different investment opportunities because yeah. everyone thinks VC first There's also private equity, strategic yeah. capital alliances, all of these different things. And they all have their and, different pros and cons, but the point of all of this is that there is one more, there is more than one option. So whether you're a, a lone entrepreneur or wherever you're a corporate entrepreneur, there's, you don't have to be discouraged by the headlines that we're seeing at the moment that Absolutely. you can find different uh, approaches and opportunities that, that fit for you. And right now, a big one that's, that's popped up for us. And, and to be honest, I don't think we'll do it at least not in the typical form, but is, is your customers. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you, I mean, you can raise money from your customers. You can raise $1.07 million from unaccredited customers uh, through, you know, um, start engine and whatever else. That's and, the uh, equity crowdfunding. I think. Yeah. That's equity called. crowdfunding. Yeah. And they, yeah. they can, you can set the limit as low as you want. You could have people invest 500 bucks in your company. Um, there's a whole bunch of maintenance that, as a result of that, that, that needs to occur. And for us, I, I'm just not sure that that's worth it at our stage. We're, we're kind of beyond what, where you typically raise a, do like a, a typical crowdfunding round, but, but we are looking, you know, I am having conversations with like accredited investors that are customers of ours, you know, but, but I guess it's like looking, we have a, I guess the way that I look at it is we've built our company on our own social platform, right? Communicating with our customers directly ourselves. There's no reason why we can't leverage that same connection and communication to a potential investor community in the same way. And um, it doesn't necessarily, we don't necessarily need to wait for investment groups to come to us. We might just be able to be like, Hey, you know what? This is what we want to do. This is the type of business that we want to be. And let us know if you're interested in being a part of that, you know, yeah. and um, it's just, it's a little, it's like direct to consumer, it's direct to investor, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, it's a little bit different way, but anyway, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So what can we, the lean startup community do to help you? And in particular, are you hiring at the moment? <laughs> I appreciate it. Asking for um, a friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. Yeah. We, um, you know, I have, um, I have been, so I took over for the company. Uh, well, what the lean startup community can do is, is go check out our website, pickybars.com. And if you like it, order something. And, um, and if you, and if you are interested, you should really try out our subscription service, the picky club. It is the hallmark of our business. It's where we spend most of our resources. You get a free t-shirt, you get discount on recurring discount on your products, more the more that you buy, the more you get, you get free shipping. And then you get all these kind of prizes and insight into picky bars and kind of communication, special communication from us. So that's, that's one thing that, that anybody listening to this can do. And that would, and that, that would be fantastic in terms of going back to the um, hiring and, and where we are as a company right now, I actually spent 2019 um, leaning us out um, because we, it was my first year full time as, as a CEO and we were unprofitable in 2018, largely because we had a big supply chain disruption that where we basically went out of stock and I had to throw away a bunch of product and that, that was really bad. But, but also because we were looking back on it now, I think I had more employees than we needed at the company because I wasn't there enough to provide enough direction. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and because of that, I just like kind of threw people at problems and I, I didn't, I couldn't give people a good enough sense of like what problems were important and what problems we should just let be problems or just forget about. And, um, and now that I've been in the company a, for a little over a year, I, um, we had a bunch of people kind of turn over all for kind of personal, you know, they were having kids or they were getting married or they were moving or whatever. And I basically rehired like 60% of those jobs. And as a result, we lost uh, kind of two to three people off of our eight to nine person headcount. And so we're running really lean right now. Um, and we will be hiring, but I'm being very, um, uh, stingy <laughs> about it. Well, very <laughs> picky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very picky. Yeah, there you go about it. I, you know, I'm really trying to keep us lean and make sure that we're only spending our time and energy and resources on the problems or the opportunities or you know, whatever it is that are most important to us, because I really believe that's the only way you can be successful as small as we are. And, and even though we're a, we're a fairly established company now, we still have a long way to go to really be, you know, bigger. So, yeah. so I don't know. So we'll see. I do, th I do see some hiring in our future, but um, nothing crazy yet. If we raise some money, yeah, I've got about three to four people I'm going to hire right away. Awesome. Well, yeah. speaking of, uh, you know, valuable use of, of limited resources, thank you so yeah. much for giving us some of your time to, to share this, these insights and this story with us. It's been amazing. A great story. And, uh, we, we wish you all of the best. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks a bunch. I really appreciate you guys, um, having me on. It's, it's always, it's actually, it's, um, it's really unique for me because I've, I've, you know, I've done a fair number of podcasts, <laughs> but they've almost all just my triathlon career. And I think we barely even mentioned my, I mean, we mentioned it, but you know, I didn't tell my normal triathlon stories and that's great. It was kind of really fun just to talk mm -hmm. business. So I, I really uh, appreciate the, the chance to chat. Thanks a bunch. Yeah, great. And how can people find you and connect with you online? Yeah. So, um, I am Jesse M Thomas. My middle, middle name is McDonald. So Jesse M Thomas, and that's on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm probably, I'm most active now on Instagram. Um, and then you, you know, I've got a Facebook thing that's there too. Strava. I still post all my workouts to Strava. So anybody wants to check that out. And then, um, and then, yeah, just check out pickybars.com and follow us at pickybars on, on Instagram and Twitter is where we're most active as well. Um, and uh, yeah, check out our subscription service, the Picky Club. Like I said, that's really the focus of our business and, and how we differentiate ourselves in a super crowded market. So I'd be interested in anybody's feedback on that. Awesome. And cool. thank, thank you everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to subscribe for the next episodes as well. If you have any suggestions, feedback, or would like to discuss the content, you can find us on Twitter or any of the socials at Lean Startup. And please do feel free to connect with me directly at Gesto, that's G-U-E-S-T-O, uh, on Twitter or slash Chris Guest on LinkedIn. Um, we hope to speak to you again soon and, and share more great stories and content with you. Until then, take care and bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Lean Startup Company podcast. We also have a blog that goes along with this episode at leanstartup.co. If you're seeking to bring the entrepreneurial spirit to your organization, Lean Startup Company can help by providing training, coaching, and consulting services. To learn more, visit us at leanstartup.co or find us on Twitter at Lean Startup. Thanks for joining us.